What is this? I don't think the players even know what's going on. That's not the right call. Come on, ref, he's been doing it all day. I don't even know. What, what's going on right now? What do these rules actually even mean? Go sports. Where are your glasses, ref? For a game that's supposed to be our national sport, perhaps we don't know as much about rugby as we think we do. The rules and how they're applied to the game fire up New Zealanders like almost nothing else. And if you're one of those people who has no idea what the rules are, today we're explaining how to watch rugby and actually understand what's going on, or at least fake it. Maggie Cogger-Orr is a professional rugby ref. She's with me now. I'm Jono Williams, and this is Stuff Explained. Hi, Maggie. Hi. How well do you think the general public of New Zealand understand the rules of rugby? I think the general public of New Zealand have a really good understanding of the laws of rugby generally. I think obviously rugby's biggest issue is that there's often and relatively frequently some changes that happen to the laws. So we've probably got people who have a really good understanding, but of some laws that are maybe no longer up to date. So maybe old interpretations of certain laws that used to be correct and are no longer correct or are no longer seen that way. But in general, I think, you know, the New Zealand rugby population, it's our national sport, very, very well educated and very opinionated about a lot of the laws of rugby. Oh, yes. Nothing provokes outrage more than a dodgy ref in an All Blacks test. How well do you think players understand the rules? So that's a really interesting area because I think it's really noticeable when players have a really good understanding of the rules. TJ Perinara certainly springs to mind um, and Kendra Coxage, to be fair. I think halfbacks probably make it their business to know the laws so that they can be challenging when they want to be. Um, so I think it's, it's noticeable when players have a really good understanding of the rules. It's probably one where we don't really know necessarily how, how well other players maybe know the laws. Often players will maybe know the laws that apply to them personally. So uh, if you are in the lineout, you might know the lineout laws really well. Or if, obviously, if you're a front row, you probably know the scrum laws really well. Um, but in terms of those who would have to know all of the laws, you know, we've got 19 subcategories of laws. Probably not that many, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> okay, let's get into some of the technical points of rugby. What is the point of a scrum? So the point of a scrum basically is a restart of play. So that's really what it's meant to be. Um, but rugby, we rugby union, I should say, we want to make sure that most facets of the game, we want to see them as a contest. So even if you're not the team on attack, you don't have the ball, uh, in rugby union, sort of a principle is that the defensive team should always have an opportunity to contest the possession. So rather than in rugby league where we see them sort of give each other a bit of a cuddle, put the ball in, the ball comes out and no one pushes. Rugby Union, the point of the scrum, we've had a stoppage in play due to maybe an error or something happening. We're now restarting play, but there's an opportunity for a contest of whether possession is going to stay with the team. But at its sort of core role, a scrum is just there basically for us to get the ball back into play. What about a line-out? What's happening there? So a line-out basically is sort of Rugby Union's version of a throw-in from football basically so the ball has gone into touch so when the ball leaves the field of play in rugby we say it's in touch um, again one of those things that has always been around it's a very often confusing way to describe something but in touch basically the ball's gone out of the field of play and we now again need to restart the game and return the ball to the field of play so whatever team basically hasn't put the ball into touch throws into the line out so they will have one player standing on the sideline throwing into a various number of players depending on what their structure is key message though is that it still is a contest so the other team has the opportunity to jump to try to take the ball which is part of why you'll see referees called not straight in the line out because the ball must be thrown 
down the tunnel, which is basically a gap between the two teams, which makes it a fair contest for both teams to have access to have a go at the ball. So we've got an opportunity to attack while we're putting the ball back into play. This is something you hear a lot about advantage and letting advantage run. What is advantage and how does the ref decide how long to let it run for? Yes. So this is certainly something I think that increasingly uh, is up for debate because it's probably one of the few things in rugby that there's no way to standardize it across everyone. So basically, anytime there's an infringement in the game, because sort of one of rugby union's sort of core principles is that we want to minimize stoppage and we want play to continue. So um, let's say we've got the red team and the blue team playing. If the blue team knocks the ball on, meaning they've dropped the ball forward, we basically now say, okay, we're under advantage for that infringement. So now red have the ball. So what we're now looking to see is that red gain either a tactical or territorial advantage. So red either have the opportunity to make a line break up the field. Um, maybe they have an opportunity to kick and gain some territory. So that's what we're looking for is basically that it, the advantage is we're looking to see if the team who didn't infringe can gain a tactical or territorial benefit from that. Now, if they can't, that's when you'll hear referees say, oh, there's no advantage there. So we're going to come back for the scrum. So we have two types of advantage depending on sort of how serious the infringement was. So the example I've just given there tends to be like a knock-on advantage, which is quite small because, again, a scrum, you're really only gaining, you know, the five meters that they're back. So it's a relatively small infringement. So you'll often hear the advantage be quite short there. Maybe a kick that goes 10 or 20 meters downfield, a phase maybe going across the field and another breakdown. You'll often hear referees say advantage over. Our other type of advantage, if a team commits a more serious infringement, like a penalty. So... Um, a high tackle or they have put their hands in a ruck or they've done something that they're not meant to do. Okay, so now blue has done that. So now we've got advantage red. Now, because it's a penalty advantage, we're looking for probably a bit more of a territorial or a tactical gain before you'll hear the referee call over. That's probably something that's starting to be up for debate now because we are seeing some very long advantages. And it's starting to sort of push the question as to at what point is the fact that you've had the ball for a minute that's actually you using your advantage. And it's certainly something that we as a referee group are conscious of um, and making sure that we apply advantage consistently, but also if there isn't any advantage coming that we just we just go, okay, well, you're actually not going anywhere. We'll come back because we want to encourage that sort of attacking play. You mentioned a couple of things there I want to pick up on about putting hands into a ruck. Explain a ruck to me and how it's different to a maul. Yes. So in rugby, we basically sort of have probably three, in terms of the contact aspect of rugby union, we've got sort of three key pieces. So obviously we have a tackle, which is the actual action of a defender bringing the ball carrier to ground. So for us to say that a tackle has occurred, basically the ball carrier has to be on the ground. And we sort of interpret that as a knee or more on the ground. So as soon as we've had a tackle, the person who's made the tackle, their first obligation is to release. They have to let the player go so that that player can put the ball back towards their own team. So that's sort of phase one. Phase two is now you'll see people all running towards the ball carrier and now trying to protect the ball. So as soon as the ball carrier's teammates arrive and someone is crouched over the ball, one person from either side, we now say we have a ruck. And a ruck, or sometimes called a breakdown. So as soon as we have a ruck, we basically now sort of have an opportunity for the game to have a little bit more structure. So as soon as there's a ruck, we now have this other added bonus if we have what is called offside lines, which means that once we've got that person who's crouched over the ball, each team now has a side of the ruck that they have to stay on. So the defending team has to be at the back foot, so the furthest person back on their side of the crouched players, and the attacking team has to be on the furthest side back of their players as well. 
So a ruck, basically, you'll often see one to two bodies on the ground with one to two to three, depending on how many, crouched over the ball versus a maul is a an upright action, basically. So it is a tackler who has sort of held the ball carrier in an upright position. So nobody's on the ground. And then one or more of the ball carrier's teammates have joined in. So um, most teams will use this at, at line out. It's a bit of an attacking weapon. So the jumper will bring the ball down and they will form a maul naturally. And then they're allowed to drive it forward once that's formed. And the defending team isn't allowed to collapse that. So they're not allowed to bring that to ground like you would do in a tackle once the maul has formed. Um, now, in the middle of the field, if you see it, it's normally the defenders who have started the maul because they're trying to hold, they're trying to prevent a tackle. They're trying to keep the ball up because as a defender, if you can keep the ball in a maul, you are awarded the turnover. So if you can prevent the the team that brings it into the mall from being able to play it again, the ref will turn the ball over and you will get put into the scrum. You mentioned high tackles. What actually constitutes a high tackle? Because you hear it mentioned on commentary a lot, whether something was high. How do you actually judge that, particularly in a game that's moving so fast? The framework is that anything at or above the shoulder line is considered a high tackle. And there are variations on that at certain grades. So at some of our age grades, the the line is lower. So the line will be at the sternum, for instance, at some of our age grade rugby where we're trying to protect um, our younger players. Um, but at senior level, um, we're basically looking at anything that is making contact with above the line of the shoulders. So sometimes, to be fair, they'll be really minor. Um, it could be that if someone's running and someone tries to tackle them from behind and their arm swings sort of over the top of them, um, we call it a seatbelt tackle because their arm sort of ends up looking like a seatbelt across the person's chest. That is now considered a high tackle. We want to protect people's head and neck regions, so we really don't want any contact up there. At the top level, professional rugby, we're certainly now seeing a lot of the head-on-head -head collisions, which is, again, upright people sort of colliding and making that direct head contact. So any basically any contact that is with the head or neck region that stems from sort of if we would say that the defender is at fault for it, um, that's going to be considered foul play, which is the sort of general category that we would put high dangerous tackles in. Um, and then those are the ones that we as referees are looking to deal with further. When a player gets a head knock, who actually makes the call for them to go off? Is it the ref? Is it the coach? Does the player have to say something feels wrong? How does that actually work? So it's going to depend on what grade you're playing at. So um, again, at a grassroots community level, it's often the referee's call. Now, obviously, there, there are coaches... Um, and physios who also may pull players off. But at the end of the day, typically at a grassroots level, we're looking at um, what we call recognize and remove. So if you've seen a player take a head knock, because we are so much closer to the action than the people on the sideline, it normally rests within the referee's hands to, to say, listen, I've seen this person take a head knock. I don't think they should continue to play. Um, particularly if you have seen direct head-on-head -head contact. Now, that being said, there will be ones that you don't see that a physio or a coach may say, oh, actually, we're going to remove this player ourselves, which is what we really want. New Zealand Rugby and some other unions in the world have brought in what's called a blue card. So that's a third card in a referee's um, pocket at a community level, um, which basically a referee can use if they have a player who they want to remove from the field who is refusing to be removed. Because obviously... People are very passionate. They want to play on. Um, we have perhaps come from a bit of a mentality of like, oh, it's fine. I just got my bell rung. It's not a big deal. Um, when in reality, people only have one brain. And at some point, you have to be the bad guy. And you have to say, actually, you're, I'm not continuing the game. So we can issue them a blue card, which basically puts them on sort of a, a mandatory stand down period um, and starts the process of them having to be cleared. Now, obviously, sometimes we're going to get those wrong because we're just trying to protect people. So teams are always entitled to have those 
basically reviewed by a doctor and if the doctor says no you don't have a concussion you're okay the player can return but if they do they then follow our return to play um now at that sort of professional test match level there's a sideline doctor um so what they will generally do is they have a sort of separate scheme very similar to a tmo um where they will review big head-on-head collisions and then they will say uh, actually, I want number 10 blue to come off because I have a, sus- a suspected head knock and we call it a head injury assessment. So if you ever hear on the comms someone saying, oh, is it an HIA? They're coming off basically for a head knock check. So at a sort of top level, it's a neutral match doctor. So it's not a doctor from either of the teams because, again, we don't want anyone feeling pressured by coaches or management about like, oh, that's our best player. You can't take them off. So there's a neutral match doctor who will make the decision of that player actually needs to be checked. They come off. They've got a 15 minute window that they must stay off the field, even if the check only takes six minutes. Um, and then they they can return to play, I think, from 12 minutes of the, the 15. So you mentioned the blue card there. And I want to talk about the other two cards, the red and the yellow. What qualifies for each one of those cards? And this must be probably the most controversial part of your job, right? 100%. <laughs> um, so we have basically, it's, it's the idea of like a temporary sanction and then sort of to be sent off. Um, the extra complicated part is obviously in the Pacific, we use a 20-minute red card as well. So our red card is sort of like a diet red card, <laughs> um, which suits probably the style of play down here which maybe isn't necessarily as aligned with the Northern Hemisphere. So obviously, sort of at at the World Cup, for instance, we just have our normal red card, which means you don't take any further part in the game, and then a yellow card, which is a 10-minute sin bin. So this, again, meaning you go and you sit in a chair for 10 minutes, and then you can come back, very much like the naughty step of primary school just applied to rugby. So again, we're looking basically at, in terms of sanctions we can give to players, we have sort of three levels. We've got a penalty kick, which is just... Your team goes back 10 meters. The other team gets an opportunity to restart play. Then we have, okay, something more serious, which is a yellow card. And then, okay, something very serious, red card. And those are obviously applied slightly differently to each concept. Probably the most common one that TV viewers see is foul play. So again, basically we're looking at if we have something, a dangerous tackle, it's basically a question of like how dangerous was it? Is there any other, we call it mitigation? So is there anything else to consider? Like, yeah, this was very dangerous, but... For instance, maybe the tackler who who's committed the foul play got pushed by someone else. So that's impacted how they've ended up hitting this person. Um, so we'll look for other things because we don't want to give out red cards if we can help it. But we also know that as referees, our biggest priority is safety and keeping everyone safe. So basically, you're looking at red card would be something that's high level of danger, no mitigation, or something potentially like reckless, something that someone is intentionally done to hurt someone else obviously that's there's not a lot of sympathy there at a yellow card level again we're looking at maybe something that that was a higher degree of danger but has a mitigation factor so has something that was maybe outside of that player's control that has contributed to the fact that something dangerous has happened but it isn't sort of entirely that person's fault um, and then at, again we at our lower level we just have oh maybe just a seatbelt tackle like you've just got it a bit wrong it's not necessarily that dangerous the dangerous relatively low just something wrong And then sort of the second way that cards are applied is if we have something that's happening over and over and over again. So it's sort of like when you're a kid and, you know, come down to dinner, come down to get dinner, come down to dinner. Okay, now your PlayStation's been taken away. We call it escalation. So if a team is maybe repeatedly doing something that is illegal um, and the referee has said to them, you need to stop doing this, but we haven't had that change of behavior, a referee then may go, okay, even though this penalty isn't quite dangerous, you've committed four of this exact same penalty. So now this player is going to go sit in the bin in the sense that 
that team is now being punished for all of those acts cumulatively, even though maybe one act is not that bad in particular. What do you think is the most misunderstood rule in rugby? Oh, that's really hard. Um, I think the most, I mean, I would say probably the most difficult area to referee is probably scrums because there is a lot of moving parts and they're often big moving parts. You know, you're looking at 900 kgs versus 880 kgs. Um, with, you know, probably 10 things that you're trying to watch as a referee. And certainly, uh, you know, some of the players who, you know, are wily, they know exactly what you can see, they know what you can't see. So I think, to be fair, scrum- scrummaging penalties are often something where we work with the pictures that we can see and we're working based on on what we can interpret it. But I certainly understand that occasionally, particularly if the TV camera is on the opposite side to the referee standing, sometimes the TV camera angles, people on, on understandably watching on the TV will be like, how have you got to that penalty when this is what I can see? I mean, it may be one of those realities where the referee can just see something totally different. Um, so I think that's probably one of the most controversial ones in the sense that there's, you know, four or five moving parts all at once. It's happening very quickly. There's a lot of pressure on there. Um, so probably one of the ones that I think it's understandable that people disagree the the most with. Okay, picture this. I'm at the pub with my friends. The rugby's on the big screen. Other than just going, yay, when something good happens or ooh, when there's a big hit, what are the three things we need to really know to make it sound like we know what we're talking about while we're watching the rugby? Okay, so I think, I mean, obviously at a, at a very basic level, we we tend to summarize that rugby is a game played on your feet. So the key thing to always remember is that basically once you're on the ground, you have, you're out of the game. So once you go to the ground, you have one movement to place the ball, then you can't do anything else. If you are the tackler and you're on the ground, you can't do anything else. You just have to get back to your feet. So the most important thing is that we are wanting to see players on their feet to take part. So a lot of the penalties at ruck breakdown will be for people not on their feet doing things that they're not allowed to do. So the first thing I think is if you're watching, so in a game we would have 200 rucks a game. So that's probably the most important area to understand, even though, you know, I just said all scrums are quite complicated. There's actually almost no, there's probably maybe 18 scrums in a game. It's actually not that big of a deal in terms of like the ball's trying to go in, it's going to come out, we're going to go. When you're looking for a ruck, basically what we want to see is we want to see people staying on their feet. So that's the main one there. The second thing, obviously, to understand, probably in terms of what happens a lot in our rugby down here, is about kicking. So with kicking, we have that concept of offside coming in again. So when someone kicks the ball, the only people who are allowed to move forward are the people who are in line or behind the person who kicks the ball. So again, if we've got a ruck on the ground and the scrum half, so the person who's picking up the ball passes the ball back 10 meters to someone standing back there, all of those people in front of the kicker are now offside. So you'll see them stand there and wait, and someone from the back line will often scream through and put them all on side. So probably the understanding of, like, with kicking, that's why everyone's standing still when the ball has been kicked. Again, and and understanding that what's going to happen, okay, if the ball does go into touch, okay, so if the black team puts it into touch, it's now going to be a red team throw. Okay, now we can sort of start understanding what's going to happen when we're putting it back in. And so probably, yeah, if you can understand that at breakdown time, we're looking for people to be on their feet. At kicking, we're looking for people to be behind the kicker. Um, And then, yeah, probably the third one is just what teams are trying to achieve, right? So basically, there's a concept in rugby called the gain line, which is, again, basically like the line when there's a ruck of bodies on the ground, 
If you drew an imaginary line across the field, we would call that the gain line. And a team is always trying to basically every time they carry the ball, they're trying to get past that line. So you'll start to notice that, okay, they they will run. One person will catch the ball and then they'll do a short little pass to someone else who's running even quicker so that they can get past the gain line. So when you start to think like, oh, yeah, good, you'll often hear people say like, oh, they're making the gain line. They're going past the gain line or oh, they can't seem to get past the gain line. That's a good little tip if you need to sound like you know what you're talking about and you see a team going forward quite quickly, they're getting good gain line, good gain line ball there. Thanks for joining us on Stuff Explained, Maggie. No problem. Happy to help. And that's it for this episode of Stuff Explained. I'm John O'Williams, and on behalf of Maggie Cogger-Orr and producer Philippa Tolley, thanks for listening. You can find more Stuff Explained online at stuff.co.nz and make sure to like and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Chris. Yes. Do you want another very broad question? I've got a very broad question today. Go on, then. What do you know about sports? Up the wires, go the Black Caps, and don't forget Premier League football. Oh, you do love a bit of Premier League footage, do. don't you? What team is it that you support again? Oh, the current champions, Manchester City. I think they're pronounced Arsenal. It's pronounced Arsenal. Uh, but you know what's good about football? It what? They don't regulate sock height. I'm sorry? There's a sport that regulates sock height? Indeed there is, and it's cycling. That's very strange. Why on earth do they regulate it? Well, I know, but if you want to find out, you'll have to listen to the Big Stuff Quiz, wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, that's a cliffhanger indeed. The Big Stuff Quiz is brought to you by Melbourne Every Bit Different. Listener.